Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity's true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest today has been bringing grace and truth all over the world for over 45 years. He's spoken at scores of universities, including Harvard, Oxford, Princeton, Yale, and the like. He's spoken to the U.N., Congresses, parliaments, governments, the CIA, the White House. He's spoken on six continents to every conceivable audience, and sometimes he's under the watchful eyes of security guards. His ministry has offices all over the world. He's been on CNN. He's been on Fox. He's been on several other international broadcasts. He's had a show on our network, the National Religious Broadcasters Network, where I don't have enough faith to be an atheist airs. He has three different radio programs that air on thousands of stations around the world. One of them. You probably hear quite a bit. It's called Let My People Think. It's on outlets all over the world. He's uh, on top of all that, written about 25 books. And of course, whatever he writes, God reads. He's married with three grown children and they're all involved in ministry. He has grandkids. And my guest today, as most of you have discovered by now, is the great Dr. Ravi Zacharias. Ravi just did a wonderful eulogy for our mutual friend and mentor, Dr. Norman Geisler was here when he was here now. Uh, Ravi, I got to ask you, when are you going to start doing something with your life. I mean, (laughs) you are, you created this amazing ministry. You're all over the world, uh, probably 200 days a year. This is uh, amazing. How how have you been? Well, I've been well, Frank, and thank you so much. Good to be chatting with you. Uh, For those of you listening, uh, I've been an admirer and friend of Frank for many, many years. I think we actually met through uh, the courtesy of Dr. Norman Geisler. We did. uh, our friendship goes back, and I listen to you, read your stuff, and uh, very inspired by both your range of thought, but also your passion and dedication, Frank. I hope someday I can start slowing down. I always tell my wife next year, uh, and then the invitations mount. They just mm-hmm. close in, and my wife also looks at them, and she says, you know what? As the years are winding down, you will have less and less availability. You may as well take it while you can and write while you can. So maybe uh, if my health remains, I'll keep going for a few years and then just devote myself to writing and uh, mentoring the team. Well, I I said to you at the eulogy, and by the way, it was a wonderful service you gave to our mutual friend and mentor, Dr. Norman Geiser. You started out by saying, we're burying a giant. And in fact, we did. And uh, there's one question that Norm is not being asked right now, and that is, couldn't you have done more? And the answer is no. The guy wrote 129 <laughs> books, and wow. uh, you uh, have written over 25 books, and you're all over the world just continually. I don't know how you do it at, at, at 73. You were just interviewed by Ben Shapiro. That was a wonderful interview. Tell us what that was like with Ben. Well, I was, you know, uh, Ben has a huge following all over the world. I've received letters from down under Australia, New Zealand. I've received it from uh, just about any major country you can think of, and especially Europe, where it surprises me the kind of hearing that he gets out there because Europe is so politically liberal as a Mm. rule and philosophically liberal. 
Ben's a wonderful host and a very, very uh, thoughtful, uh, mm -hmm. thought-provoking interviewer. He gives you the time to answer. I would say in the years and years of uh, interviewing that I've done, Ben's been truly one of the finest to ever be with. And uh, his whole staff uh, just comes together to make you feel welcome and not to feel, une not to feel uneasy in the interview at all. And he knows his stuff. I was commenting because I've listened to yeah. your interview with him. I also listened to the one he had with William Lane Craig and Stephen Meyer. And he knows all the right questions to ask. He knows some of the ins and outs of apologetics that I would not expect him to yeah. know. So that that was a wonderful interview that you gave with him, Robbie. I, I think he's a very genuine thinker. Mm -hmm. uh, he mm -hmm. uh, Sometimes you can very easily ask the right question without even knowing the the context and whereof you speak. Uh, not so with Ben, I think. Mm -hmm. And of course, when you read uh, his writings, you know he's done his research because for every paragraph you write, you have to read hundreds of paragraphs in order to pen that one paragraph. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, ben here, he knows the Bible. He knows uh, his Hebrew scriptures. He knows uh, the New Testament, how to phrase those questions. But, you know, never for a moment did I feel intimidated by him. Never for a moment did I feel it was kind of a gotcha type mm -hmm. of an interview. That I don't think is his goal. I think his goal is to let the person being interviewed speak and let the listener make the judge whether the questions have been fairly answered. So I loved every minute of being with him. And after 40 some years of doing speaking, uh, I think my interview with Mr. Shapiro will go back as one of the uh, best hours uh, that I spent talking to somebody uh, so knowledgeable. Well, speaking of uh, spending some time reading and then being able to write, you've written 25 books. Your newest book is a devotional called The Logic of God. I think I'm right now on week 44. I'm almost done. <laughs> it's, in, it's intended to, to, to be wait, basically one devotional a week because there's 52 in there, but I wanted to, I couldn't wait. I wanted to read uh, the book. And so I'm almost done with it. It's a fabulous devotional. Why did you write this, Robbie? Logic of God. Yeah, I, I think it's a good, it's a good question, and I'm hoping in the latter years to do a little more devotional writing, not in the pattern of a daily or weekly, but inspiring thoughts and ideas. I've done a fair bit uh, run at cultural apologetics, philosophical thoughts, problem of evil, all of those which are very important, but they're done much more with the idea of addressing the questioner and addressing questions. I want a few, be, to write a few books on things that have really inspired my life. Uh, what has shaped the kind of thinking that I enjoy doing? Why is reading a good essay as nourishing, uh, more nourishing than a plate of food sitting in front of you? Great writers like uh, Malcolm Muggeridge, G.K. Chesterton, F.W. Borum, Peter Kraft, uh, James Stewart, uh, G. Campbell Morgan, biblical writers, thoughtful writers, those who deal with cultural issues, things that have shaped my soul. Uh, I want to do that. And uh, hopefully in the next few years, we'll get to it. Now, as for the logic of God, that came about by the, from a suggestion made by the publisher, my good friend, Joey Paul, whom you may know, who's been in the publishing publishing industry for years, he said, have you ever thought of doing a devotional book? And I said, yes, I have, Joey, but I tell you what, typical books are, devotional books are one every day, and I'm not that kind of a thinker. I like to think deep. I, have, I like to think, think long. 
I like to revisit those thoughts, see if I'm getting it right. And so I had originally proposed, we call the book, Thank God It's Monday, mm-hmm. and do it every Monday morning and just reflect on some very profound issues and then move on the following Monday. Uh, but they didn't like the title of it. They changed it to the logic of God based on one of the key essays on the paradigm that uh, God's thoughts on matters that have been revealed to us in his word and across history. So they, they called it the logic of God. And uh, I enjoyed doing it together. But my uh, research assistant, Danielle, was key in pulling together some of my writings over the years to complete this manuscript for Zonovan. Well, there are so many great nuggets of thought in there that you do go deep on, and we're going to go through some of them uh, as this program unfolds, ladies and gentlemen. I'm talking to Ravi Zacharias. I'm sure many of you know who Ravi is. Uh, By the way, Ravi, before we go to break in about uh, 30 or so seconds, you learned uh, quite a bit from Dr. Norman Geisler. Where did you learn from him? Was that at Trinity? Yes, sir. Uh, I was a student of his at uh, Trinity, what was called Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the 70s. Kenneth Kansa was the dean at that time, and uh, Harry Evans, and then succeeded by Kenneth Meyer as the uh, head of that institute. Great professors there. Dr. Geisler was my professor of philosophy, philosophy of religion, and apologetics. So that's where I got to meet him, know him, and learn from him. One of the highlights of all of my learning days, I owe him a debt I couldn't repay. That's why I flew from Asia to come and speak at the funeral. Well, when we come back, we're going to have a lot more with Dr. Ravi Zacharias. His new book, The Logic of God, a devotional a week. You can handle that, and you should. It's a wonderful devotional. I'm Frank Turk. We're back in just two minutes with Ravi Zacharias. Don't go away. Thank you for listening to the Cross-Examined Podcast. This material is made available to you for free by the contributions of listeners like you. If you wish to support future podcasts, just go to crossexamine.org and click on the Donate button, or simply use the Donate feature directly on our app. Thanks. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. We're talking to Dr. Ravi Zacharias. His brand new devotional book, The Logic of God, is broken up into 52, two to three page devotionals that goes deep into some uh, incredible insights that Ravi has garnered over the years. He's a great reader. He's a great writer. He's a great speaker, as you know. And so this is a book you can give to anybody and they will benefit from it. Our goal here is to become more like Jesus, and this book will help you do it. Now, before we get into some of the details of the book, Ravi, I want to ask you this question. We were having dinner. This has to be about 20 or so years ago here in Charlotte. And we were uh-huh. having dinner. It was myself, um, Dr. Geisler, and you. And you asked Dr. Geisler this question. You said, what kind of apologist are you? And he said, I'm a classical apologist. And then Norm asked you what kind of a apologist you were. And you said you were a moral law apologist. What did you mean by that? Yes, and uh, breaking it down even into more bite-sized portions now when I'm asked, I answer the question as a cultural apologist. But Mm -hmm. what I meant by that, you know, and Dr. Geisler was right. Of course, Dr. Geisler could have debated on at any one of those, in any one of those categories, as you and I well know. Mm. But moral law apologists, to me, um, Frank, you know, you can 
the philosophers who are well studied can try to poke holes in any of the arguments one gives. If you're determined to dismantle an argument and you know enough on a subject, you can just do enough, wreak enough havoc on anything mm-hmm. anybody says. And so when you go to the three main ones from the cosmological to the teleological to the ontological or even to the existential uh, realm of it, uh, there are very sobering and challenging counterpoints which we have to take seriously and respond to. I think those arguments are still valid, but I think it takes a lot more work. The moral argument, as far as I'm concerned, all the way down to the contemporary response of Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins and all, none of them has done an honestly good effort at explaining why we do our moral thinking, why we think from what is to what ought. And as far as I'm concerned, it is part of the image of God in us, the moral reasoning aspect, the reflection of his splendor, that there is a law by which uh, uh, morality must function and life must function. So to me, that's ultimately the argument I defend the most, either explicitly or implicitly. So that's what I meant when I was talking to Dr. Geiser. Have you noticed the the change in the questions that are asked of you, Robbie, on a college campus? Because you and I are both on college campuses. You've been doing it a lot longer than I yeah. have. have. Have you noticed a shift uh, in the questions toward more questions about morality? Because I have. I don't know if it's been the same with you. Yes, I, I was going to say, I'm sure you have noticed that too. You know what? I've really started doing this seriously uh, somewhere in the 80s. So it's been uh, nearly two generations uh, that have uh, now arrived on the scene. There was no doubt, and that's one of the reasons I so enjoyed studying under Dr. Geisler as a classical apologist. You had to be well-tuned with the cosmological argument. You had to be well-studied in the great thinkers from uh, the skeptics to the uh, ethicists to the empiricists and postmodernists and all of that. You know, you had to know how to respond to the critiques of Immanuel Kant or David Hume or Locke or the utilitarian philosophers, all those big categories that you study when you're at grad school, which are very uh, important subjects to know. But it's fascinating to me, Frank. You go back, if I go back across the last five to seven years, I don't recall when I was asked a question on either Kant's ethic or Hume and miracles or uh, Kierkegaard and uh, those the challenges of existentialist uh, spirituality. But the issues that we are talked about today are issues of meaning, of suicide, Mm. of sexuality, and of course, that old thorn in the flesh of the problem of evil. Uh, I just finished a week of uh, meetings in upstate New York where I did a series on uh, where we get our values from, did a three-part series on that. Uh, Those are the questions. They are much more in the realm of uh, living life, meaning, uh, autonomy, and uh, a lot of questions on sexuality, because that is the issue of the, on the day as to why it is so uh, impeding uh, to life to have the Christian view on these matters, as if uh, counter perspectives are all completely uh, giving everybody the freedom to do whatever they believe, that which is a false assumption. But those are the kinds of questions, as you well know, and they're tougher questions, frankly, because the older ones 
you could go back to history, go back to statements, go back to the notion of truth. But in a post-truth era, uh, meaning and satisfaction are the goals of life. Uh, while we are living in the most meaningless and the most dissatisfied culture that I recall in the last 50 years. See, Ravi, you were onto this much earlier than most other apologists were. You knew that the moral component of life is more important to people than whether or not the universe was created or it's designed, because it ultimately comes down to morality anyway. I'd love to ask atheists on a college campus this question. If Christianity were true, would you become a Christian? And Ravi, I've had atheists stand in front of hundreds of people and say no when I ask that question. And when then I ask them privately why they said no, it always goes back to morality. They don't want anybody to hold them accountable. And I'm sure you found that quite a bit as well. You know, and, you know, the the thing about this is, Frank, that they assume that we love it, that we are very happy to have all these pictures played. <laughs> That's around, right. That we decided <laughs> to have all the red lights every time. Yeah, we sure. Go. Yeah. Let me give you a classic example of this. I won't name the gentleman, but he has been a very vibrant force on blocking any uh, efforts of Christians to speak on military bases. Mm. And I went to see him. I visited him. He's a very uh, uh, hostile type individual in the way he'll attack views and so on. So I sat down, uh, as I think I said in Ben Shapiro, the Ben Shapiro you did, to yes. two, two German shepherds, dogs sitting there and so on. And I remember him saying to me that he objected to Jesus holding a gun to our heads and telling mm. us, either you believe or else. My goodness, that picture that he painted is exactly the opposite of what I have seen in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I said to him, I said, you know, you're the one holding a gun to people's head. You're the one telling people you either block the speaker or I will finish off your freedom here on the campus, finish off your faculty tenure here, take away your commandership and all. I said, you're holding the gun to the head. I said, you know what? Jesus, right from the beginning, has given you the autonomy to make your choice where he has taken away your autonomy is not in the act of your uh, expression of it, but you cannot sever the choice from the consequences. And you're actually asking God to create a disordered world in the process. He gives you the freedom to choose. He does not give you the freedom to choose the consequences Mm. of your choice. That is built in in a pattern. You know, at the end of it, we became friends. He visited me in Atlanta with his wife, took him out for a nice Indian meal. And he looked at me and he said, "Uh, Ravi, I'll never stand in your way. And he hasn't. I've been to just about every major military base. So this idea that God somehow is the great restrictor, uh, and there's no doubt there is restriction, but that's like my five-year-old complaining that I've really restricted him from not putting his hand into the fire. That's right. Uh, That's right. That is exactly the kind of laws God gives to us so that we do not self-destruct. And it turns out that's a moral question as well. When when they when they come back and they say to you, "Well, God is holding a gun to my head." Well, is that immoral for God to do, even if it were true? You're you're you're, you're imposing or you're you're suggesting there's a moral standard out there, and your worldview does not have that standard. Yet you're you're stealing it from God. Somebody should write a book about that. You're stealing it from God <laughs> to to yeah. say that God is somehow wrong. And so yeah. I, I almost. 
it must be 70, 80 percent of the questions I get, Ravi, and, and perhaps you as well. They somehow have a moral component to them. Even this next one I want to ask you has a moral component and you deal with it in the first few entries of The Logic of God. And friends, if you're just tuning in, we're talking to Dr. Ravi Zacharias. His book is called The Logic of God. It's a 52 week devotional, one devotional per week. You can handle that. And early on, you, you address the question, how can it be true that there's only one way? And that turns out to be a moral question as well, because it impugns the nature of God by saying, why didn't God provide more than one ways? But you point out, Ravi, that every religious viewpoint is exclusive. Can you unpack that for us? Yes. And I think this is the great misunderstanding. Whenever anybody asks that question, they tell us they not only don't understand the logic of what they're asking, but they don't understand the other, other Christian worldviews as well. Gautama Buddha was born a Hindu. Why is it that he created the path of Buddhism? Hinduism also has two in non-negotiable aspects, uh, the law of karma and reincarnation. Islam, we all know, is exclusivistic. The fact of the matter is all truth claims are exclusivistic. Mm -hmm. Whenever you make a truth claim, you are ex excluding the opposite. And that follows through for, for uh, worldviews as well. The atheist is exclusivistic. Mm -hmm. The atheist is actually, by the very definition, negative God. There is no God. So he's already excluding, he or she is excluding God from the paradigm of interpretation. All worldviews, if they claim to be true, will of necessity be exclusivistic. That's how the laws of logic are and the laws of non-contradiction apply to reality. To deny the law of non-contradiction is to affirm the law of non-contradiction. So it is a necessary logical law in any truth claim. And it's ironically, it seems to me, Robbie, that only the atheists think they're the ones um, who are not exclusivistic. But as you just pointed out, they are. They think they're completely correct about everything since they assert that every religious person must be mistaken about the spiritual dimension to life. Now, you know, we as Christians, we acknowledge that other religions are correct in that they, they know there's a spiritual dimension to life, even if we might disagree about the nature of that spiritual dimension. So I think in this sense, it's only the atheists who are the true exclusivists. They are. They basically, uh, they only target the Christian because mm -hmm. uh, they, they like to hit at the Christian because that's the popular thing to do in our time. And the atheistic bullies float around uh, uh, just uh, hovering over the Christian worldview to pummel it because they know the Christian, if he or she is a true Christian, will respond in love and not in hostility. But the fact of the matter is they are the most explicit, like the word tolerant that is given in our time. My goodness, I have never seen such a word that is meaningless in terms That's of right. practice in our time. Totally vacuous because it doesn't mean a thing of what it intimates in its original meaning. Well, let's cover that when we come back from the break. We're talking to Ravi Zacharias. His brand new book, a devotional, is called The Logic of God, which you need to get one devotional a week. Again, you can deal with that and you'll want to. I'm Frank Turk. We're back in two minutes. Don't go away.
As you know, we have a lot of resources at crossexamine.org. In fact, if you go to crossexamine.org and click on online courses, you'll see we're about to run Why I Still Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist, the online course. I'll be your instructor. It begins in September, but you want to sign up soon. We have limited seating. I also want you to go to, over to rzim.org. That's Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. They have a wealth of great resources there as well. And it's uh, it was founded by my guest today, uh, Ravi. Zacharias. We're talking about his brand new book, The Logic of God. And Robbie, just before the break, uh, we were you just started to begin talking about tolerance and how the people who say they're tolerant uh, are often the most intolerant people out there. Why don't you unpack the word tolerance for us? Are Christians supposed to be tolerant? Well, you know, the whole issue of tolerance actually came about in a challenge to any spiritual norms or any spiritual um, values that we wish to talk about and with a sense of oughtness. And so tolerance began to sort of be an attacking word like, hey, don't be so confident of what you believe. Make room for me too, because this is improper and uncivil. So it came as an attack word on the counter perspective that the opposing views were not tolerant and accepting. Now it has not just morphed into the opposite. It has become a view where anyone who challenges the relativistic worldview, anyone who challenges a total autonomy, that there are no absolutes of any kind, if anyone challenges that notion, you know, America has become one of the most dangerous places to live that way, Frank. I cover the globe. I do 15 to 18 countries every year. Uh, even in a nation like Malaysia, which is overwhelmingly Islamic, I have given more liberties there, more freedom there to speak on the campuses uh, without being intimidated into threatening my family. The biggest threats I have seen in the world today come in America. That's they sobering. come from either mm. certain segments or individuals or tiny groups and any time a Christian speaks his or her voice, my word, the hostility, the venom, and my Capitol Hill has just become a microcosm of uh, what is happening macrocosmically. And by the way, that illustrates a point. I was talking to one person in Washington who knows quite a bit about the scene. I won't even describe the field in which this person works. My wife and I were having a donut and coffee with him. He's, he knows a lot of what's going on. He said, Ravi, out here, it has all boiled down to one word. He said, no, it's not Republican or Democrat. No, it's not liberal or conservative. It boils down to one word, God or no God. Mm. He said, if you don't believe in God, you have the whole landscape ahead of you to, to moralize and pontificate on anything you want. If you do believe in God, you are hammered and sliced and diced or drawn and quartered, whatever description you want to use. So this word tolerance originally should really have meant the willingness in civil discourse to be able to accept the other person's right to that belief without destroying that other person. But what we have done is we no longer just attack ideas, we attack people. If a person holds to a certain view because of God, 
others will come to destroy his or her life and family. And I remember going back in the 70s and 80s and watching the destruction of people uh, who would share their testimony and belief on certain things. My goodness, advertisers would block them. People would stop uh, allowing them to come on their programs. And before you knew it, they were sort of ostracized as if they were cultural lepers, never to be allowed in the mainstream, mainstream of life. I don't know how this happened, but so it is. And it's happened in the last 40 to 50 years. Uh, I have in my uh, phone, I hold a definition of uh, Sheikh Nahyan from uh, the UAE, who has written a, a statement on tolerance. It's the most brilliant statement I have read. And I know Sheikh Nahyan. And in that, he talks about the fact that tolerance ought not to just mean, okay, we'll allow this person to hold the view. It should mean respectfully mm. disagreeing or having respect for the individual nevertheless. And this is the year of tolerance in the UAE. And by the way, one of the Middle Eastern countries that I will not name right now, that has never hosted a national prayer breakfast. One Middle Eastern country is hosting for the first time in its history a national prayer breakfast this year. I'm having the privilege of speaking at it. This is an almost entirely Islamic country, but they are just declaring it okay in the spirit of what uh, the UAE has said, the sp uh, spirit of tolerance, we will be willing to have a Christian speaker and a Christian prayer breakfast held on our land. My word, what a what a change that is. And that here in some of our Ivy League schools, you've got to be walking in with a few bodyguards because the tolerant uh, want to have nothing of your presence even on their campus. It goes back to Romans chapter one, I believe, that when we suppress the truth too much, Ravi, we're we give into futile yeah. thinking to the point that we're not only doing evil, we're cheering on other people who are doing evil. And uh, you know, it's, it's a sad thing, Frank. And mm -hmm. you know, you and I have done this for years, and uh, I keep going, uh, you keep going. Uh, we are seeing lives changed all over the map mm -hmm. and behind the scenes. Even though people are tough on a public forum, they'll take you aside and tell you, you know what, I respect you. One of the biggest audiences we had. It was about 9,000, one of the major universities, and the vice president, uh, I thanked her for the way the students and faculty had behaved in the interaction. She just grabbed my hand and she said, Mr. Zacharias, you set the tone here from the beginning, and they were just responding to that tone of respect mm. and civility. And that's how I believe should be the way forward. And I have hope that there are more people who are willing to live and listen in a civil way than the, ex the extremists here and there who wish to silence any opposing viewpoint. And again, this is all about morality, friends. For those of you listening, notice that all these issues are moral issues. Even if you will uh, respectfully listen to somebody else, that's a moral issue. And so Ravi's been doing mm -hmm. this for 45 years from a moral perspective for a good reason. Now, Ravi, you're right. And again, we're talking about the book, The Logic of God, friends. And uh, if you, ha you don't have it, you need to get it again. It is a devotional, one devotional a week, 52 of them. The devotionals are anywhere from two to three pages with questions at the end. Very helpful. And Ravi, you wrote this statement that I think is quite profound. There's a lot of profound statements in The Logic of God. But this one really struck me. Jesus claimed to be the truth. And therefore, to reject Jesus is to govern yourself with a lie. Wow. 
Here's my question. We run into a lot of people. You and I both and our listeners run into people who don't want Christianity to be true. They want to govern themselves uh, by themselves. They will not submit to truth. How do we how do we minister to such people? Well, I think it's probably the most difficult thing to do if an individual you're talking to is determined to suppress the truth and to go in the way of falsehood. You know, a person in his or her life, Frank, as we know, may have particular truths that they believe. But when I'm talking about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life, I mean about the essence of what life is all about, the path which he's called us to to take in life, and the point of reference which we have by which we make our moral judgments. That is what is given to us in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. But if a person is determined to believe a lie, uh, you know, Jesus also did not perform his miracles in some places Mm. because they simply did not want to go to the logical conclusion of who he was and what it was he was claiming. The best thing to do is to be patient and with time uh, just that things might happen in their lives so that they are willing to open up. Mm. You know, just uh, less than 24 hours ago, talking to a man from a completely different faith, a man who is a successful uh, business type person or in the high tech world, and uh, I've known him for years. And uh, he has always resisted always fought off. In fact, if he ever saw me in conferences, he'd never even say a word. He was determined to have those blinkers on and keep going. He would be brought by his family. I'm trying to remember, maybe the man in his late 30s or early 40s, yesterday morning, before I left the conference, had the privilege of having him in my room, praying with him as he received Jesus Christ. Wow. And when he opened his eyes, he looked at me and he said, Mr. Zacharias, this has been a 14-year-long journey for me. I thought all along I could do this my way. I have ended up paying a very heavy price in my life, in my family, as everything that is of real value has fallen apart. And the reason I'm sitting before you listening is because I have a lot of rebuilding to do. And I think what happened more, happens more often than not, Frank, is that life starts falling apart. Mm. Life starts collapsing, imploding, or as Nicholas Walterstorff says, we miss solve, but at the end, we still have to explain death and evil. And he made that comment at the death of his uh, young son, I think, who died um, several years ago, I think in the, in the 80s, and uh, the publisher's description of his book, Lament for a Son, he says, every other book that Professor Walter Storff has written is on philosophy or theology, and he writes as a professor, this book is written as a father, and when, he, when he'd lost his son. And I think that's what uh, we at times need to recognize. We are not who we are professionally. We are who we are essentially, a person created in the image of God. And then we are who we are relationally. And when relationships relationships crumble and the world implodes in front of you, you realize you are not who you really thought 
you were. I mean, I came to know Christ, as you know, on a bed of suicide when I was 17. Mm -hmm. I'm 73 now. Mm. And so 56 years later, I say, God visited me on a hospital bed when I wasn't even looking for him, except desperately needed him more than I needed anyone else. Mm. We're talking to Robbie Zacharias. His new book is The Logic of God. Now, Robbie, I get the question. I know you get the question as well. How do you stay so calm when you're asked hostile questions by people who appear to be hurt? And my answer, and I'm going to get your answer right after the break because we're coming up to it, is that I shouldn't expect someone to be where I am in terms of spiritual development. I wasn't even where I was 20 years ago. Right. <laughs> I mean, so... We have to keep that in mind when we're talking to people. When we come back from the break, we're going to get uh, a lot more from Robbie Zacharias in his fabulous new book, The Logic of God. So don't go away. Also, check out his website, rzim.org. Back in two. If you find value in the content of this podcast, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find more. Just type cross-examine or Frank Turek on the search bar. Also, visit our website where we add new videos, articles, and free resources daily. Welcome back to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. My name is Frank Turk. My guest is the great Robbie Zacharias's brand new book, The Logic of God, a 52-week devotional that has one devotional a week. Great insights in it. Before the break, we were talking about the fact that when I get a hostile question, I, I try and tell myself, I don't know where this person's coming from. I shouldn't expect the person to believe exactly what I believe. That person's on a spiritual journey like I am. And Ravi, I've heard you say this. Whenever you're dealing with a question, always remember you're dealing with a questioner. So what kind of preparation do you have before you're about to take questions? What are you thinking when people are coming up to the microphone? Actually, and I'm sure this possibly true of you too, and I would expect of every uh, apologist that does this, it is not so much just preparation for the talk, because even if you have delivered that talk many times, uh, the most important preparation is your own heart, your own soul, and in prayer. But then I think it goes on to what possible questions could come from this talk in this particular setting whether you're in the Middle East, you're in Far East, on a university campus, a business community, a high school auditorium, um, those who are involved in uh, uh, technical work, engineering work, all of these contexts make a difference. So to me, it is the preparation of the soul and it is the preparation for the questions, what possible questions can come from a talk such as this, especially if there's a lot of stuff floating around in the news for the last one or two days. So it's preparing your heart and preparing for the questions that takes up most of the time in any talk. Now, Robbie, we were speaking off the air about how you've noticed that so many of the questions you're getting are coming from younger people. People are struggling with identity. They're struggling with meaning. They're struggling with purpose. And one thing that you said many years ago that really helped me is you said there's no meaning or there's no morality without purpose, the purpose of life. Without purpose of life, we don't we can't say a particular behavior is good or bad. So what is the purpose of life? Why did God put us here? Why are we here, Robbie? Well, I think that is really the question 
that haunts all of us at some stage. Uh, the purpose of living, what is all this amounting to anyway? And, <clears throat> and many times as I try to answer the question, I look at the age of the person, what could that person be struggling with? And interestingly enough, Frank, these questions are now being asked by younger people. Mm. I've, I've had 12, 13 years old uh, individuals coming and asking the question of what is to keep them from committing suicide. That's exactly the way some of them have phrased it because at a younger age, they have experienced more than you and I would have at our time and in our milieu. They're having a lot more because of all they have access to through technology and it's left them empty. So the question of meaning and purpose, uh, who we are, whose we are, why we are, to what end we are, comes in order to explain something that is both immediate and something that is both into the future. That's the way I look at it. We have uh, intimations of reality in our lives. For example, you fall in love, you enjoy romance, then you move to the mar marriage stage, the consummate relationship between a husband and a wife in the embrace of two bodies, which is the depth of expression of love out of which even new life may be born. I think those are indicators for us of what we really long for. But the deepest longing is not of the body as much as we may think it is. All bodily experiences have a shelf life till the body itself starts to disintegrate. Uh, what uh, Longfellow said, life is real, life is earnest, and the grave is not its goal. Dust thou art to dust returnest was not spoken of the soul. It is that soul hunger. And that's why Jesus, uh, through his word, says, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. It is the ultimate expression of love in the spirit. So to me, there are four components that come to meaning in this flesh that we have. A sense of awe, a knowledge of the truth, the experience of love, and the confidence of security. All of those come together in the spirit when we have that indwelling presence of God. You know, it was, I think, 1969 when uh, the, the astronauts set a foot onto the moon. Yes. Buzz Aldrin wrote a brilliant article in which he said what very few people knew, that when he set foot on that moon there, he, he contacted Houston and he said, Houston, this is the LM pilot speaking. I'm going to ask for a few moments of silence right now that we will ponder what has happened in the last few events that have just brought us here. And then he said this, for me, it meant taking Holy Communion. So he pulled out the bag in which he'd kept the bread and the wine and poured that into a cup. And he said, in one sixth gravity of the moon, the wine just curled up the side of the glass as it was settling in. And he broke bread, drank that wine, communion with God, and then read from the scripture, I am the vine and you are the branches. What an incredible act on the surface of the moon, taking holy communion as the only expression that could fully consummate what it is that express the awe. To me, we are created to be in awesome wonder 
And that only God is big enough in that relationship of bringing wonder, truth, love, and security. God is a being in relationship. The purpose is to find that relationship. On that relationship, all other relationships then find their blueprint. That is the purpose for which we are made. Knowing God, related to God, and translating and mirroring that beauty in every other earthly relationship. Arguments can come to an end, but relationships is what keeps us going. And the relationship with God is the ultimate definer of all relationships. And Robbie, that's why you said in the book, The Logic of God, that God just didn't send an answer. He sent a person. And right. um, you you right. also, I, I want to get to this subject because we're running out of time here. I think this is such a wonderful insight. Um, you said that in the West, pain and suffering isn't as big a problem as is the problem of pleasure. Can you unpack mm -hmm. that for us? Yes, I think we we find that to be the reason for the imploding values of the West. It is not because we are in pain. Oh yeah, we have pains, we have sufferings, we have struggles. The unanswered questions are what boundaries are we going to draw for pleasure? G.K. Chesterton said, whenever you remove any fence, always find out first why it was put there in the first place. Mm. When pleasure has exhausted itself, Frank, you end up emptier than before. G.K. Chesterton also said that the meaninglessness comes not because of being weary of pain, but because of being weary of pleasure. We have a multi-millionaire now behind bars. Why? All of his millions were being used to seduce underaged people and exploit them and use them. That which was a prison within him is now a prison surrounding him. It showed that all of his wealth he was still hunting after a new experience every day and in the process, violating the youngest among us. That's what has happened. When pleasure has no boundaries, that boundaryless existence ultimately enchains us. Here's what Ravi said from his new book, and this is why you need to get the book, The Logic of God. This is from page 193. What we are left with is a way of thinking basically shaped by our appetites and our proclivities, which is, which is how life has become defined by our untamed passions. Hence, incoherence is now normal, unquote. Robbie, there's so many insights in here. I've got so many questions, but we only have about two minutes left. Can you just wrap up one more thought for us? And you've said this so many times. I'd love to have you explain it in a little bit deeper way. You've said this, God did not come or Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. Yes. And for, before I sign off on that, Frank, I appreciate you so much and what you do, how you do, why you do it. We've known each other for years. Mm -hmm. I consider you a valiant co-fighter for the truth out there, and I pray your best years will be ahead. So thank, thank you, you for brother. having Same me. Same here. Thank you. The, the, the issue is not so much that I'm a bad person or somebody else a bad person, that we need to be better people. Morality alone will never get, her into the, get us into the kingdom of heaven. Other worldviews may tell you, be better, be better, be better, and you will ultimately be perfect. That is not what God calls us to. It's God alone who is perfect. We are dead to him by the power of his Holy Spirit. When we read his word, he brings to life 
that which was dormant or dead within us, that being alive. When a man writes to me within an hour or two of a 13-year-old giving his life to Christ, and the grandfather writes and says, Ravi, my grandson looks different. He's a different boy. I got off the plane and read that sitting next to my wife and my eyes filled with tears. This little guy is going through a very tough time in life. He's going through a very tough time in life. I can't explain what it is. And here he is now with a new light in his eye. It was like there was death within him. There is now life and there's hope. And that's what the physical resurrection is only the ultimate expression in the end of the spiritual resurrection where God brings to life within us that which was dead, dead to God, alive to him, and all definitions then find their source in the very author of life. The Logic of God by Ravi Zacharias. Friends, you need to get it immediately. You can get it in Kindle. You can get it uh, hardcover. It's a wonderful year-long devotional, one devotion a week, and it's got insights like this in it. So, Ravi, again, I'm indebted to you. I've learned so much from you, and uh, especially when I go on a college campus, I'm thinking, how would Ravi answer this? So thank you so much. Well, you're very kind. Learn much from you, Dufrain. God be with you and your whole team. Keep it up. Thank I you. hope our paths cross again soon. Yes, sir. Same to Ravi. Pray, pray for Ravi. He's about to go on another international trip, ladies and gentlemen. RZIM.org. RZIM.org. Go there. And don't forget about the why I still don't have enough faith to be an atheist online course. It begins in September. You can sign up at crossexamine.org. Just click on online courses. I'm Frank Turek. See you next time. We hope you got a lot of value out of this episode. If you think our podcast needs to reach more people, here's what you can do to help. Go to iTunes and type cross-examined official podcast, four words in the search bar, and leave us a five-star rating. It'll take you less than five seconds. And if you have a few more seconds to spare, leave us a positive review. The best reviews will be featured on future episodes. You can also listen on Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play. God bless. God bless.